I also want to highly commend to you what REACH is doing to, uh, to get ready to welcome in our incoming freshmen. Um, I'm sure you guys remember when it was, uh, oh, maybe you don't, but it might have been too long. But, you know, when, when the incoming freshmen come up to college, it's, it can be nerve-wracking. They, they can be a little nervous and uh, a little scared because even though they might have seen your face around church, um, you know, every now and then, they still don't really know you. So it'd be great just if you could uh, just do these little acts of care that could uh, just minister so well. Uh, to them. So I highly encourage you to do that if you haven't done so already. Right now, the uh, we have some two, two fine gentlemen passing out some handouts for you guys. So uh, if you need pens, they're also in the back. Um, and uh, yeah, our study this evening is in the book of Judges. We continue in the book of Judges. We were, uh, we're in our third week, so naturally we're in Judges 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Judges 3. It's Judges 3. If you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament. And if you Need a little more help than that? There's a table of contents in your Bible that can help you with that. Um, Before we begin, let's pray, though. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for how every single aspect of it is profitable. It is helpful for us and instructive to us in our faith. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, at times when we study the Old Testament, it can be kind of curious in terms of how these things apply to us. And as we embark on that challenge this evening... May we not get lost in the mindset of how does, how does this apply to me only, but may we also see the big picture of what you're trying to communicate about yourself, to see the broader picture of what you were doing in redemptive history. And as we understand that, that we would relate to that rather than try and force the text to relate to us. And so we pray, Father, for great humility as we study the Old Testament We're grateful for your word and for how it just peels back the curtain a little bit more so that we can see more of who you are. We're grateful for everything that you've done in your son's name. We pray. Amen. Well, whenever whenever you take a look at a diamond on display, there are four things that a jeweler wants for you to understand. There are four things that a jeweler wants for you to look at. And they can be summed up in four C's. We want to look at the diamond's cut, the diamond's color, the clarity, and the carat weight. Or if you want the exaggeratedly short version of it, you just want to see how big the diamond is and how pretty it is. If you look at a diamond from afar, it's obviously going to look great. Right? It's going to look pretty because it shines in the light. But would you purchase a diamond if you don't get a closer look? The answer for those of you who don't know is no. Okay. You want a closer look to make sure that the number of imperfections in the diamond are limited. You want to make sure that you you have the real deal and you don't have cubic zirconium. Or you want to make sure you have an actual diamond that you're paying what you, uh, that you're getting what you're paying for. You want to see that beautiful clarity of the diamond, the brilliance and the sparkle. And in order to maximize the beauty of the diamond, you don't look at the diamond against the light. It'll get, it'll get lost. Right? The brilliance of the diamond will get lost in the light. You must look at it against a black background if you are truly going to see the brilliance of the diamond, which is why jewelers tend to show people their diamonds against black velvet. The book of Judges is the black velvet backdrop against which the hope of God yet to be revealed um, is seen. 
right, the hope of God's salvation plan is viewed against this back dark uh, against this this uh, black backdrop um, of the book of Judges. And what we're going to see tonight and in in the subsequent weeks is evidence of God's saving power, even though Israel deserved everything that came to them as a result of their disobedience. Yet God extends his mercy to Israel because they are his covenant people. And despite the fact that he must discipline them for sin, he still loves them and will not abandon them. In fact, God allows and uses their disobedience to provide examples of his faithfulness to his people despite their unfaithfulness as he prepares them for the ultimate reveal of his salvation plan. And so this evening, we're going to see four examples of God's sovereign purpose despite Israel's sin. Four examples of God's sovereign purpose despite Israel's sin. And the first example of God's sovereign purpose is God's testing of Israel. God's testing of Israel. Verse 1 or 2. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. Chapter 3 builds off what God said in chapter 2, 20 to 23. Because of Israel's sin, God's gracious action of driving out the nations who were skilled at war with amateur soldiers will no longer happen. And even though the land of Canaan rightly belonged to Israel since Abraham bought a title deed to the land when he buried his wife Sarah, God will not allow for Israel to fully possess what is rightfully theirs. Instead... What we see reiterated here in verse 1 is that God allows for the nations to remain in the land to test Israel. Will Israel obey God's commands and follow him or not? The younger generation, it says, needs to learn war. And that's kind of weird because you're wondering, well, why do they need to learn war? Well, they needed to learn war not only because they needed to grow as soldiers, but also because they needed to understand that when war is a part of God's program, they have to obey him and trust in him alone. The gods of the nations cannot help them because they are nothing. Only the God of Israel, Yahweh, can help Israel. And that's where Israel started going astray. They started trusting after the other gods. They started following after the other gods, even though they knew who the true God was. And so because of that, God needed to show them, when we go to war, you need to follow me and me alone. You leave those other gods behind. Now, the nations that God left in the land were the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, Sorry, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites. These nations are not insignificant. They are large groups of people who would be constant thorns in the side of Israel. Not necessarily because they would attack Israel, although they did do that, but because they would, inf- they would influence Israel to worship false gods. So the question remains, as we are reminded in verse 4, would Israel... Obey the commandments of Yahweh and serve him alone as Moses taught them? Or would they assimilate with the nations and follow after the gods of the nations? We don't have to wait long for our answer. As we see it very clearly in verses 5 to 6, 
that instead of trying to drive the other nations out of the land like they were commanded to during the conquest of the land in, uh, in Joshua, they lived among the nations that were in the land of Canaan. And not only did they live amongst the nations, they allowed for their children to intermarry with the people in the land. You know, oftentimes when we look at the Old Testament and we see God's command for Israel to commit genocide by wiping out the people who live in the land, we get uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable because it seems unfair that God would command his people to take the lives of an entire people group without question. And we're thinking, but what about the kids? What about the women? What about the people who are innocent? And this is where it can be a little difficult because we have to remember that, not, that no one is innocent, that every single one of us has committed sin against God. And because of that, we rightly all deserve to die. But we also forget another thing, too. And this is where our background in the Old Testament is very helpful. We forget that God is not just randomly calling for the death of entire people groups. It's not senseless. It's actually entirely purposeful. In Genesis 15, 16, when God is making his covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham that Abraham's, will not, Abraham's descendants will not claim their land until the fourth generation. Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And what we're going to see in Leviticus 18 and 20 is that God has other nations in the land in mind as well. That their sin is not yet complete. So God does not allow for Israel to take full possession of the land initially because he was going to use his people, Israel, as instruments of justice. To judge the people of the land for their sin. And so, even though it can get a little uncomfortable, even though it's hard to think about at times, God is not calling for Israel to commit senseless genocide. He is calling on the people to be his tools of justice as they claim what is rightfully theirs. I know that's still difficult to hear, but at the same time, we have to understand that when God is executing justice, he is entirely right in doing so. And so you see, failing to drive out the people of the land is one aspect of failure that God cannot tolerate because Israel was supposed to be the tool that he used to bring about justice. They were supposed to bring about divine punishment upon these Canaanite peoples for their sins, especially their idol worship. When they are caught here living amongst the Canaanites and giving their children to each other in marriage, this is a big problem. You were supposed to be distinct, Israel. You were supposed to hold yourself set apart from the people of the land. And yet you're intermarrying with them. And this is a problem. It's a bigger offense because it's, it results in the canonization or secularization of the nation of Israel. And this is something that God explicitly prohibits in Deuteronomy 7.3 under Moses. And he reiterates that prohibition in Joshua 23, 12 to, 13, 12 to 13, under Joshua. God didn't want them intermarrying with the people in the land because he knew that if you married, if you intermarried with the people of the land, they're going to draw your heart away to worship the gods of the, of the land. 
And you know that is very possible. You know that that has happened because you know Solomon. Or you know that because Solomon loved many foreign women and he had many, many wives of, uh, from foreign lands, his heart was drawn away from God. They tempted him to worship other gods instead of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And so you know that God has a specific purpose in this. He wanted to protect his people from being secularized, from being canonized. He wanted them to continue to be set apart, and they refused to do so. And so, as a result, as a result, he allows for them to bear the consequences of their failure to follow after him, not giving them the full conquest over the land, and eventually allowing foreign nations to attack them and oppress them, something that he told them would happen they broke their promise to follow after him in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. As you can tell, there's a lot of, a lot of what God does is based off of the Old Testament. So if you're kind of wondering why certain things are the way that they are, you kind of have to understand Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, actually the entire Pentateuch. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand some of these things, right? And um, so I encourage you, if you have questions, well, you can ask me, but look to the Old Testament. See if there are any cross-references in your Bible that can help you understand why it is that, uh, that God has certain commands and certain even disciplines for the people, okay? Um, now, what can we take away from these first six verses? What can we take away from these first six verses? Because these first six verses, as they talk about uh, Israel's sin, it kind of seems like it's not applicable, well, one significant takeaway that I feel is particularly applicable to us as Americans is one that the Israelites should have been aware of. Are we separate from the culture of the people that we live among? Are we separate from the culture of the people that we live, live among? Or have we become just like them and have thus allowed for ourselves to not only approve their sins, but give, hearty, uh, uh, but give hearty approval to their sins as well and participate in them. Look, I'm not saying that God's call for Israel to wipe out the idol worshipers in Canaan means that we should go around wiping out non-Christians in our city. That's not what I'm saying. That's, that command doesn't apply anymore. But something that God called his people to do that is reiterated in various ways in the New Testament is to be separate from the world. We live in it, but we should not be of it. Right? We are not to be like the world in our attitudes, in our pursuits, in our goals, in our desires. They shouldn't look the same. The things that drive them shouldn't be the things that drive us. And even if they look similar, the reason why they look similar is because we're still striving to turn that over to glorify God. Now, many people struggle to find a balance here because this is a discernment issue, right? It's a wisdom issue that affects all of us differently. But brothers and sisters, this doesn't mean that we have license to do whatever we please. We have to ask ourselves, would Jesus be honored and glorified when other people see the way that we live our lives, hear our thoughts, see our attitude, and compare our life goals with theirs? Would he be glorified in that? Do we live lives that are similar but distinct? 
all because of the gospel? Or are we like, are, are we just like the hypocrites people claim Christians to be? Because the only thing that they see different about us is the fact that we still go to church on Fridays and Sundays. God's testing of Israel shows us one of the examples of how he uses the events that occur in our lives to fulfill his sovereign purpose, even when it might seem like there's a disconnect. God has a purpose in allowing for the people of Israel to be tested, and he even had a plan for their failure as well. Though the people would fail to obey him, God would not fail to be faithful to them, both to discipline them and to deliver them in their time of need. And that leads us to the second example of God's sovereign purpose, which is God's deliverance through Othniel. God's deliverance through Othniel. Verse 7-8. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. So what we see here is that as a result of the canonization of the people, of the secularization of the people, the beginning of the tailspin for people who supposedly loved God, they forgot Yahweh their God. And you have to wonder, how is that even possible? Or how is it possible that the God that you worshipped, the God that your fathers worshipped for hundreds of years, how do you forget him after you've been told all the marvelous things that he's done? And yet, what we see here is that they forgot Yahweh their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs, the idols of the Canaanites. And as a result of their sin, as a result of their unfaithfulness, God sells them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. Now, we don't know too much about this king, uh, but what we do know is that he was the king of a very large section of land, a very vast section of land. It was the land that was in between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Even if you take a look at uh, a map of the ancient world and you look up Mesopotamia, you see that he had a vast territory. Um, we're not really sure what Cushan uh, Rishathim did to the sons of Israel, but what we do know is that his rule over them was unbearable. Unbearable to the point where the sons of Israel, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. Verse 9. It says, um, yeah, that the Lord raised him up, a deliverer. This Othniel is the same Othniel that we were introduced to in Judges 1, and he's the one who won the right to marry Caleb's daughter because he was willing and able to capture Kiriath Sefer. Notice that when you look at the language of the author of Judges, um, it sounds almost messianic when he talks about Othniel. He raised up Othniel, and he called him a deliverer um, in the Hebrew the word is very close to the word Messiah, Savior. So Yahweh raises up a special deliverer in Othniel. And the reason why we know that he's special, unlike any of the other judges, or a good number of the judges, is that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel and indwells him. 
Right? It's a, in, a rare, in a rare way for the Old Testament, God gets personally involved. He indwells Othniel with the Holy Spirit so that when Othniel judges Israel and leads them out to war, he has the advantage and is given victory over Kushan Rishathim, leading to a rest for the land for 40 years. Othniel is the first judge of Israel after Joshua passed away. And while some of the events that occur in Judges happen around the same time, just in different places, the presentation of Othniel as the first judge shows us that God was showing us what it looks like when a good judge judges over Israel. Now, uh, a quick note on the judges and their, and their rules. Um, like I said uh, just a few moments ago, many of the events found in Judges do occur around the same time frame. Even though they're presented by the author as uh, sequential, they're not sequential. They're, uh, the presentation is thematic. Right? So this is not chronological order all the time. Sometimes they overlapped. Many... Um, yeah, so many of the judges overlap in their judgeships, and that's not something that's unfamiliar to us because we have many senators that are serving our country right now, and they all serve at the same time, right? but technically they're, they're supposed to be uh, serving different regions of the country, but they all serve at the same time. They all bear the title senator. And so in a similar way, the judges, they judge around the same time, but um, they were in different areas of the country. Now, Despite this detail, it is significant that Othniel is chosen by God to be the first deliverer of Israel because it signals the closeness that the judges initially had with God in their rule and deliverance of Israel. Right? And that's why Pastor Ray describes the rest of the book of Judges as a tailspin. Right? You start off at the top and then you just start spiraling down. A good judge will rule righteously because he will be spirit-filled and led. He'll do what is right according to God, according to what God wants him to do, according to God's standards, and he'll be honorable even in the way that he delivers. And that is seen in the fact that in order to deliver Israel, Othniel goes out to war. He follows the rules of engagement, and he declares war on Kushan Rishathim. And that seems like a throwaway detail, because we don't really give much attention to the fact that he goes to war, but in comparison to the judges who follow him, Othniel is the most noble judge. He follows the rules of engagement. He follows the rules. He plays by the rules, and he saves the people as he does so. But as we will soon see, his example is not one that the people will follow for long. The land, notice that too, right? It doesn't say the people had rest. It says that the land had rest. For 40 years. But after Othniel dies, the people once again fall into sin and they're placed under the rule of Eglon, the king of Moab, who conquered the nation with a coalition of enemy nations. Now, notice in verse, in verse 12 who is the one who enables Eglon to conquer Israel? It's God, Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, the one who is in covenant relationship with Israel. He is the one who strengthens Eglon 
So that Eglon is a divine tool of discipline against Israel for their sin. They sinned against Yahweh and they did not repent. Therefore, Yahweh allows for them to be ruled for 18 years. 18 years under Eglon so that they will cry out to the Lord for help. Now, you should be wondering, why did it take 18 years? Did you not know that you're under divine discipline for 18 years? Why did it take 18 years? It's because they were blinded by their sin. They were caught up in their sin. And they didn't think to turn to God until the consequences of their sin became absolutely unbearable. Of course, it's easy for us on this side to criticize Israel for their spiritual dullness and slowness to repent. But what we have to remember is that we're just like them. Right? It's, it's easy when you read the Old Testament to look at Israel and be like, you guys are so dumb. Why are you so dumb? Why are you so sinful? But what we have to recognize ourselves is that we're dumb and that we're sinful. That we continue to go to the well of sinfulness and we continue to practice sinfulness in our lives. We allow for ourselves to be placed back into bondage. It's not like we're any superior, it's not like we're any more superior to Israel than they are to us. We're all sinners. And because of sin, we've all been made dumb. But because of the gospel, we have hope. Because of the gospel, we have newness of life. We have an ability to actually become righteous, to share in God's holiness. So as a result, if we know what God's word says, and we, and we strive we will fail, but we strive to submit ourselves to his word. Deliverance from sin is possible. We don't have to be enslaved anymore. You don't have to put your hands back into open handcuffs. This serves as a challenging reminder for all of us who follow after Jesus Christ. We can do what is right before God for a time. But if our obedience is only temporary, it does not last, and it fails. It is not good. Our goal is not behavior modification so that we can please God for a time so that we can get what we want. He's not a divine genie who will give us what we want just because we wish for it. Nor is he a divine vending machine where if we make a payment, he'll do whatever we want. He's God. He's not so easily swayed by our behavior modification. What he wants, what he's always wanted, is your heart. He's always wanted your love. And that's what is very clear in Deuteronomy 6, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. He has wanted your heart and your love and your allegiance alone. That's all he's ever wanted. And so... Our goal is not behavior modification. Our goal is heart change. Heart change that leads to a living a life that is pleasing to God so that we can win people to faith. Does that make sense? Our goal is heart change that leads to living a life that is pleasing to God so that we can, we can win people to faith. So that we might save some through our actions and through our testimony. If we talk the walk and walk the walk, people will see 
that the gospel actually has power to save. People will see that the gospel is powerful, that it is worth believing, it is worth living out, that the gospel isn't just, that it isn't a a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, but it is a, it is the the life-giving message that God has to proclaim to us, that we can be free from our sin, that we can be delivered over from our sin, and we can have life everlasting because we've been adopted into his family, and we can be free. That is the message of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. And if you live a life that screams that, that reeks that, people will see that. Yes? You know, we talk about, we talk about at times trying to minister to a post-Christian world because now we live in a world that pretty much just doesn't care about Christianity, right? You, you tell them the gospel message and they're like, oh, that's nice. And I might even be a sinner, but I don't believe any of that. I don't want to believe that. You do you and I'll do me, right? That's how it is. Oh, you love church? Cool. I love baseball. You love church? Cool. I love dance, right? Church has basically become to them just another hobby, another thing that you can be obsessed about, like coffee or boba. We cannot present church to them as something that is just another option like coffee, boba, dance, baseball, whatever. It's not just another option. We are proclaiming to them the life-giving message that God has that they can be delivered from their sins, that they will not have to bear the wrath of God for their sins for eternity. That is the gospel message that we hold out to them. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we have to live it out. If you look no different than the unbelievers that you live among, should you be surprised that they don't care to listen to your gospel presentations? For those of you with unbelieving parents, If you treat them horribly, disrespectfully, angrily, dismissively, and yet you tell them that Jesus loves them and that he makes a difference in your life, do you think they should believe you? They have no reason to believe you because they look at you and they say, you just go to church, you hang out all day. They're supposed to be good people. Why aren't you learning the, the good morals that you're supposed to be learning? And then you cry and you wonder, why doesn't, my, why doesn't my father, why doesn't my mother, why doesn't my grandmother believe in the gospel? It's because they see your life. And then you're no different than them. Why would they believe in the gospel? I know that only affects some of you, and some of you do try very, very hard to be a good witness to your parents, to be a good witness to the unbelievers in your life. I know that. But we do have to take a look at ourselves, an honest look at ourselves, and really think about, is the way that I live my life actually representative of the gospel? Or does it look no different than another choice of hobby or obsession.
You have to take an honest look. It's tough, but we do. And you know, for those of you who are doing well, good job. Excel still more. Excel still more. And strive with all that you got, with all the spirit-enabled power that you have, to excel still more and to be a better witness of the gospel, to have that concern for others and to have that compassion and that love and that desire for them so that at least, at the very least, they say, I can tell that you love me because you desire for me to understand the gospel. So far this evening, we've seen how God's sovereign purpose is active in the life of Israel as he tests them and as he delivers them through Othniel. Even when everything goes wrong, God has not lost control, but is directing human history toward his ultimate salvation plan. And we'll see that even more as we move on to the third example of God's sovereign purpose. God's deliverance through Ehud. God's deliverance through Ehud. So we pick up still. We're still in the reign of Eglon. And after being under Eglon's reign for 18 years, after 18 years, the sons of Israel cry out to the Lord, and once again the Lord provides a deliverer for them, Ehud the Benjamite, a left-handed man. It's a very curious detail, isn't it? A left-handed man. Why does that matter? In the Bible, normally we don't care about what hand you use, uh, what, what hand is your dominant hand. It's a very strange detail, right? but it's an important detail. As many a, a left-hander will tell you, the majority of the world is right-handed. And as a result, left-handers are often neglected. Think about it. For those of you who went to public school and you had those little seat-desk combos, right? you look in and the majority of them are all right-handed. You all enter into the left side and you sit down and your right hand's propped up. Right? Poor left-handers. They have nothing. Their elbow's hanging over. Right? Um, that's, that's just how it is, right? Um, the overwhelming majority of scissors are for right-handed people. That's why they have left-handed scissors, if you didn't know that. Right? And worst of all, worst of all, your right-handed friends, me included, almost never notice that you're left-handed. There are some of you that I've known all my life, and I've only recently just found out that you're left-handed. Sorry. <laughs> right? and, then, and then not only that, but we make the left-handers sit in a position at, at lunch where they have nowhere to eat. Their arm is just trapped up against the wall because we make them sit there and we don't give them the edge. So in a sense, this is kind of what happens to Ehud, right? This is a little bit of, of biblical humor that is found here. Actually, this entire thing is really funny. Um, and, uh, I mean, if you think it's funny now, it's going to be even funnier later, right? Uh, but this is the kind of, like, disrespect that Ehud gets because he's left-handed. But it's going to be to his advantage. Um, now, we will see later that perhaps Ehud is ambidextrous, but, you know, who cares? It says here that he's left-handed... It says he's left-handed, and I don't want to get into the arguments of like, oh, well, maybe he, he, um, he's just training to be left-handed. It doesn't matter, okay? But what we, we're going to go with what the text says. But Ehud is left-handed. That's a significant detail. File that away for later. Now, Ehud is being sent by the sons of Israel to present an unspecified, undefined tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, notice the description of Eglon here in verse 17. That Ehud presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's very strange. Okay, even in, even in the Hebrew, 
This is like the author is poking fun at Eglon because of how fat he is. Even his name, Eglon, is uh, it's a form of the word bull. So in a sense, he's kind of a bull of a man, right? Eglon, he's very fat, he's a bull. Uh, and now the author may have been involved with some, fame, uh, with some fat shaming here, but he is also setting us up for some details that we'll have that will be important later, okay? So file that away, back to Ehud. Ehud is not only sent to present tribute, he has ulterior motives as well. As verse 16 tells you, he made a double-edged sword that was a cubit long. Now, a cubit, it, this is kind of strange. This is a, kind of interesting. A cubit is basically your elbow to your knuckle, right? And if you match up with other people, other adults, it's about the same size, right? So he makes a sword, a, a double-edged sword, a double-edged blade that's a cubit long, and then he straps it to his right thigh. He straps it to his right thigh under his cloak. Why, is, why are all these details so important? Because we know from this account that Ehud's mission was to assassinate. Unlike engaging in honorable warfare, Ehud's mission is to deceive and attempt to kill Eglon in secret. And he straps the sword on his right thigh because he knows that the guards aren't going to check him for a weapon on his right thigh because the majority of the world is right-handed. And if the majority of the world is right-handed and they're going to conceal a weapon, they're not going to conceal it on their right side where it's more difficult and awkward to pull out a weapon. They're going to conceal it on their left side, on their left thigh. So all they have to do is go down here and boom, I got you. So because they did not know that Ehud was left-handed, they only checked his left thigh for weapons when he went to Eglon. Okay, watch out for left-handed people. Just kidding. Um, all right, so Ehud and his delegation, they go before the king and they present tribute to Eglon. And after they present tribute, they go away, and Ehud passes some idols in a nearby town. And after he passes the, those idols, he turns around and he goes back to Eglon. And so it's enough time where Eglon understands, oh, he must have come from where those idols are. And having just seen Ehud, he's like, oh, what, what do you want? I, I know who you are. Right? And when Ehud tells him, I have a secret message for you, right after he passed the idols, Eglon's thinking, oh, he must have a word from the gods for me. And so foolishly, Eglon dismisses his attendants to hear Ehud's secret message. And he's sitting up on an elevated platform. And Ehud is like down here. Right? And um, when Ehud tells Eglon that he has a message from God for him, and it's a secret message, Eglon gets up, right? And so now Ehud, who is standing on the floor, he has all the tactical advantage. And so as Eglon stands up, exposing his belly, Ehud shoves the sword, the blade, straight into Eglon's belly, he shoves it straight into Eglon's belly. So Eglon is stabbed by Ehud, and he's stabbed with such force that, he, that the blade is actually enveloped by Eglon's fat. That's how fat he was, right? If you pierce a relatively big person even now, the blade would come back out of the back, right? 
but, he, but Eglon was so fat that the blade went in and it didn't come out. Right, just going. And actually, this detail is helpful too because um, it actually gives Ehud some time to get away. It's a little gross, but as a result of Ehud's stabbing of Eglon, Eglon does not have control of his bowels anymore, and they just empty. And that's gross to think about. But this is what God okay, think about this. This is what God sovereignly uses to let Ehud escape, because Ehud locks the doors to that little chamber. He goes out of um, he goes out of the vestibule, right? And then the people see him like, oh, the king must have dismissed him to the other way so that he could go to the bathroom. And they probably smell something too, and they're thinking, well, he's probably just you know using the bathroom, so we'll just leave him alone. But then when he takes too long, he doesn't come out of the bathroom. They're like, uh-oh, something might have happened. Go get the keys. Go get the keys. Let's go check on the king. And they go in, they check on the king, and he is dead on the floor. Right? But because of the smell, because of the stabbing of, uh, of Eglon and the emptying of Eglon's bowels because of the stabbing, Ehud is able to get away. Now, um, while the servants are delaying, Ehud has the chance to escape and go to a nearby city of uh, Sirah. Um, oh, you can't really see it on this map. But, okay, uh, where, where Eglon set up his temporary throne was over here by Jericho. Um, scholars, many scholars believe that the city of Palms that you see in your, in, your, in your Bibles is the city of Jericho. And Gilgal is that city where all the idols were. And so there was enough time, oh, thank you, there was enough time for, um, for Eglon to, uh, I mean, sorry, there was enough time for Ehud to escape all the way out over here to, uh, to Sirah uh, as a result of the stabbing and, and the delay of the servants. Um, and and uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of time. He, was, he had a big head start, right? And as he, and as he has that big head start, um, Ehud also has a chance to assemble, to assemble troops. He goes to Sirah, and we're told that he blows a trumpet. And the sons of Israel went down, uh, went down to him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. Verse twenty-seven, right? That trumpet that Ehud blows is a trump is not a trumpet that's used for for musical purposes, but it's a very specific trumpet, a very specific horn that is used for religious functions, to make announcements, provide battle signals, right? In a sense, it's like those trumpets uh, or horns that the armies in the Lord of the Rings uh, blow to, to tell each other stuff, right? Like, oh, I'm here, or let's go attack, right? It's kind of like those trumpets. It's not like a musical trumpet, but it's a signal trumpet. And as the sons of Israel are congregating around him, Ehud tells them to pursue the enemy Moabites because Yahweh has given the Moabites into their hands. It's not clear as to whether uh, Yahweh actually approved of Ehud's deceptive methods for delivering the people, but God does use it to bring victory to his people. What we see with Ehud's judgment is that there is less integrity here in how Ehud delivered Israel. Yet, God still uses it. God's willingness to judge the Moabites who were in the land with the king is seen 
in the overwhelming victory that God gives to Israel. The Israelite army in this section of the land are able to strategically place themselves um, on the fords of the Jordan River opposite Moab, of Moab, cutting the Moabites off from being able to retreat across the river to their homeland. And as a result of this strategic advantage, Israel completely wipes out the armed forces that Eglon had brought into Israel to keep the country subdued for 18 years. And they kill 10,000 capable and skilled soldiers, leading to another period of peace for this section of land for 80 years. Ehud's judgment, or judgeship, is helpful for us to consider as believers, because it serves as a reminder that God may not always approve of our methods, but he can still use what we do to accomplish his purposes. And that should cause us to be humble. It should cause us to be humble as we realize that we cannot dismiss suspect actions or attitudes because negative consequences have not been experienced. Just because there are no negative consequences does not mean that God is not displeased with us. Yeah, we're still responsible before God, even if we feel like we can rightly get away with things. Even if we feel that perhaps God was okay with what we did or that he is on our side because we were not disciplined. God is not a God who desires justice at any cost. He is sovereign enough where he can use the actions of sinful men to accomplish his righteous purpose. He is strong enough to overcome our sinfulness in our lives. But at the same time, he is also giving us his Holy Spirit so that we can fight to do what is right. And we can do it right now. And it's for that reason that Paul calls for believers in every single one of his epistles to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. If God has given us his Holy Spirit in a permanent way that the Old Testament saints could only dream of, He's also given us the tools to please him in all respects now. We won't be perfect in this life. You know this. But it is possible for us to flee from sin. The author of Hebrews says the same thing in a slightly different way. In Hebrews 12, 4, where he says that we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin. What the author of Hebrews is not saying is that the only way that you fought hard enough against your sin is when you start bleeding. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying you can fight harder than you think you can. You can fight harder than you think you can. That the, that the temptation that you experience, no matter how strong it feels, does not necessitate your submission to it. We can resist more than we think we can. And when we can't, the verses that follow, verse 4 of Hebrews 12, tells us that God then disciplines us because he loves us. And he wants our good, he wants what's good for us so that we may share in his holiness. We are called to righteousness so that we may share in God's holiness. That is our purpose, brothers and sisters. And so take care that you learn from Ehud and you recognize that though God can accomplish his purposes in our lives, despite our sin, it never means that our sin is at any point acceptable to him. God can and does use all things that occur in human history to accomplish his purposes. And we can see this in this curious last verse 
in our chapter as we see God's deliverance through Shamgar. God's deliverance through Shamgar. Back to Judges 3, verse 31. It says, After him, that's uh, Ehud, came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So as you can see, the coverage on Shamgar by the author is very, very sparse, leading some to believe that Shamgar was just a later addition to the text that doesn't truly belong here. And while it is certainly odd to have such a short description in this passage, only to move on to another narrative so quickly, this account of Shamgar is in the Hebrew text. And so that means that the author has to have a reason for why he included Shamgar in the text and devoted such little time to what Shamgar did. And a clue as to why so little attention is paid to Shamgar may be found in how he is identified as Shamgar, son of Anath. Now, most of us would assume that Anath is merely Shamgar's father's name. And we'll just move on, assuming that Anath is just like one of those other names in genealogies of people that we don't know. Right? And we just move on. However, the name Anath would have been highly unusual to the original audience because the name Anath is the name of a Canaanite warrior goddess. And so the fact that Shamgar is described by the author as a son of Anath has led many scholars to believe that this description of him as a son is, is an indication that he is either the son of someone who was named after the goddess or that he was a devoted follower of Anath. And they lean more towards the fact that he's a devoted follower of Anath. Either way, his connection to the Canaanite war goddess and his non-Israelite name has connected Shamgar with a fierce group of mercenary soldiers employed by the pharaohs to protect their interests in Canaan called the Hypiru. Therefore, the lack of a description for Shamgar's tribe makes a lot of sense because he's a foreigner in the land. And as a foreigner, the inclusion of Shamgar as one of those who delivered Israel is significant, even though not much attention is given to him, because it shows that God uses all sorts of people to deliver his people. And in this case, it's a foreigner who legendarily saved Israel. Shamgar's legendary feat is extraordinary when you unpack it. The fact that one warrior can take on 600 Philistine warriors by himself is impressive, okay? And it's not like the movies where they decide, oh, you know what? Let's all wait in the background and attack him one at a time, okay? It's not like those movies. They're trying to kill this guy, and he killed all of them, 600 of them, right? He is an extraordinary warrior, very vicious, brutal, if you think about it that way. Right? This is something that we expect from a movie or a video game, not from real life, but this is real life. So Shamgar is quite the warrior. And his prowess as a warrior is doubly emphasized by the fact that he takes on these 600 Philistine soldiers who are probably armored and armed with an ox goad. An ox goad, or ox pointer, is a wooden stick with an iron tip, a sharpened iron tip, or a nail at the end, and it's used for herding processes, uh, for, for herding purposes. You just poke the ox, and you kind of get them to go where you want them to go. Right? That is not the weapon of choice for a warrior. Just like the jawbone of a donkey is not something that you would use when you choose to confront armed and armored enemies. 
Shamgar is at a disadvantage here when it comes to his weapon. Yet God was with Shamgar and allowed for Shamgar to perform this heroic feat to save Israel from the Philistines. While the story of how Shamgar saved Israel is short, it is by no means um, something that was ignored. It was by no means something that was without recognition. Later in Judges 5, Deborah and, and Barak are singing a song that is meant to instruct the people of what God has done in delivering Israel, as well as to praise God for how he has saved them. And their song makes mention of the feats of Shamgar. So just because he's a foreigner doesn't mean that the Israelites didn't recognize the legitimacy of his actions. They did. And so this leads us to our own application. Even though we may not fully appreciate or even respect some of the people that God has put in power or even in our lives, we must recognize that everyone in life whether they are willing or not, can be used by God to accomplish his purposes. Even as they are exercising what they believe to be their own free will, they're still accomplishing God's purposes. And as a result, even though it's tempting, we are not to despise. We are not to despise the people, the difficult people, or the difficult situations that God allows to come into our lives. We are not to despise them, the people or the situations. Difficult situations and difficult people are a part of God's sovereign plan. He can use ungodly individuals just as much as he can use godly individuals to accomplish his purposes. So we have to recognize that. And when we do encounter difficult people, difficult problems and situations we have to understand that god sovereignly uses all of those things for his purposes it could be as simple or as small as just simply sanctifying you and making you more godly because you have to respond in a different way it could be as small as that but it could be another purpose as well we don't know what it is but we have to understand we have to remember that when god is sovereign he's sovereign over everything and if he's sovereign over everything that means he's using everything even the small stuff even that mosquito bite that you got at camp to glorify himself in some way, somehow. In somehow. We as Christians believe in the sovereignty of God, or at least we say we do. We know that he is all-powerful, and, and we know that he works all things for our good according to his purposes. And it's easy to tell ourselves this when we are not in the center of the darkness. It's easy to tell ourselves this when we have some distance between ourselves and difficult situations. But when the rubber meets the road and we find ourselves in difficult situations, in difficult to understand situations, it can be easy to think that God is either not in control or is angry with us. What we've learned this evening as, we've, as we saw God's sovereign purpose despite sin and the testing of Israel, the deliverance through Othniel, the deliverance through Ehud, and the deliverance through Shamgar is that God is always in control. He is the main actor. He is the one who raises up people to discipline those who are in disobedience. And he is also the one who will hold the disciplinarians accountable for their actions. God will not abandon his own. But he will use every instance of disobedience to help 
his people see their need for him to intervene and advance his plan. For those of us who are on this side of the cross, we're not looking for the coming of Messiah, at least the first coming of Messiah. We're looking for the second coming of Messiah. We're looking for heaven. That's what we're looking for. And as we are looking for that, as we're looking toward that, we have to be challenged to continue to keep the end purpose in mind. What else has God revealed about his plans for mankind? How can we continue to look to him with eyes of faith, knowing that everything, everything he allows into our lives, even if it takes us through the most unimaginable pain, is meant to lead us and those around us to glory. That's, that's hard. Those are hard thoughts to think about, to consider, but they're necessary as we recognize what it means for God to be in sovereign control over everything. He can and does use everything to advance his plan. We've seen that so far. He's showing Israel time and time again his faithfulness to save. They sin. They disobey. They bear the appropriate consequences. And he could have left them there. You know he could have left them there, but he didn't. Because he needed them to see. He needed them to understand that they can't do it alone. They need him. They need his intervention. And their repeated failure shows them time and time again that not even the sacrificial system was good enough to save them. They need something more. They need something better. They needed Jesus. That's what this is all pointing to. Of course, they didn't see this in the moment, right? But now on this side, as we're seeing how God is orienting everything towards his salvation plan, that that's what he's doing, right? And we... Similarly, when we go through trials in our lives, we cannot see where God is leading us all the time. Right? We don't know where these trials come from. We don't know why they come at times. We don't know when they're going to end, but we do know the end. We do know the end. And because we know the end in a way that the Israelites did not know, we can have greater faith, greater endurance, greater hope. Because we know that God's going to get us there. That he won't leave us behind. But in the end, we will be with him in glory. We will see him in his splendor and his majesty. And we will say hail to the king. Let's, let's pray. Our precious heavenly father. As we understand what you are doing theologically here in the lives of the people of Israel and how you have shown them time and time again your faithfulness. Despite their sin, despite their disobedience, despite their covenant rebellion and rejection of you, we see how truly faithful your love is for them. We see how you sovereignly use the events that happen in human history to bring great glory to yourself as you time and again discipline but then deliver, discipline but then deliver, and ultimately at the end of the day, all that people can think about is, wow, what a God Israel has. And as we think about that, as we consider that, 
when we encounter difficult situations in our lives, when we encounter trials in our lives, difficult people, difficult situations, we pray earnestly with eyes of faith, locked on the hope that is found in heaven, in you. We pray that you give us endurance. We pray that you help us to not despise the difficulty, but to embrace it as a loving friend. Knowing that when you work all things for good according to your purpose, for our good according to your purpose, that what might be good for us is not necessarily our unconditional happiness, but what might be the best thing for us is woundedness. To drive us to our knees. To help us see that we cannot do it on our own, but we need you. And so we pray that you would help us. To live in a Christ-like way so that we might win some so that you may receive all the glory, all the honor, all the majesty that you deserve. In your son's name we pray.